This podcast is sponsored by Inside Out Group, the specialists in high-risk and challenging filming and time-lapse, covering health and safety videos for rail, construction, and infrastructure projects nationwide. And we're live. Welcome to this week's Safer Than Your Average podcast. On the show this week, we've got Roger Lurie, Managing Director at ACS Risk Group, and also one of the foremost asbestos experts in the UK. Roger, over to you. Do you want to Thank come you. in and introduce yourself? <laughs> Thank you, man. Uh, good evening, folks. My name is Roger, Roger Willie, and I'm an all-round good egg. And that's all you need to know. <laughs> so I don't know if you've seen the show before, Roger, or you've seen I the format of the really. podcast. No. Um, we're just going to go straight back to the start. Tell us a bit about your early life, where you grew up, and a bit about your background. Well, I work at the moment in Govan, so people think I'm from Glasgow, and it'll come as a big, big surprise to know that I'm not actually from Glasgow at all. <laughs> I, I was born and brought up in South Wales, in one of the little mining, well, not so little, in a mining uh, valley called the Ronza, Ronza Valley. And that had the biggest concentration of steam coal mines of anywhere in the world. Uh, the coal produced there was very high in calorific value, which was great for the navies of the world. Yeah. So virtually all the coal was, uh, was either sent, sent to the Royal Navy or different navies around the world. Mm -hmm. A huge concentration of coal mines. And that's where I grew up until I was 18, until I left home. And it was, a, in some ways, a very sad little place, you know? Mm -hmm. I lived, uh, we weren't well off at all anyway, quite the opposite really, and we lived in a little street like Coronation Street, back-to-back uh, -back houses, our toilet was at the bottom of the garden outside, you know, yeah. and we didn't have hot water, we just had cold running water, an old tin bath hanging up outside, and you bathed once a week on a, on a Sunday night, the whole family, you know, in turns, yeah. you had to it up with warm water, you boiled on the stove, and that was how, we, how I grew up. Uh -huh. I lived in Lewis Street, and all the men were coal miners, of course, all of them. Yeah. There were 72 houses in Lewis Street. There were 72 families in Lewis Street. There were 72 ladies in Lewis Street, from newlyweds to really quite elderly great-grannies. When I was little, I was brought up by my great-grandmother. Yeah. And there were no retired men in Lewis Street, none. My dad went down the black hole at 14 years and one day. My two grandfathers went down at 12 years and one day. And my uncles between 12 and 14, depending, you know. Yeah. And they're all dead by mid-50s, by late-50s. All of them. Every one of them. My dad went down at uh, 14 and one day, and he died at 54. The average male life expectancy in my little village was 55, for God's sake. My dad went a year early by our standards. By your standards in Bears Den, you'd expect a white person in Bears Den to live to 82, 84, something like that. Yeah. On average, you know. So by your standards, he died 30 odd years too early. Mm -hmm. By our standards, a year too early. And that's one hell of a way to grow up. Yeah. And I, I shouldn't be here now because I was destined, because again, we're a very, very poor background. Mm -hmm. and no one in my family had ever been to a proper school or university, forget it, you know, <laughs> couldn't pronounce the word, let alone go there. 
And I was supremely lucky because I, I shouldn't be here now. I should have gone down a black hole and I should have died mid late fifties. That's what I should have done. Mm-hmm. And I was supremely lucky. My parents wouldn't let me go down a black hole, and they put me in for a scholarship exam. And we lived in a very very poor community, and there was an outstanding boys' grammar school in two villages down. And they took sixty kids a year. You know, the cream was the cream. You know. And I was lucky enough to win uh, win a place at that school. And off I went. I was bussed every day there and bussed back and all the rest of it. And that, that's how it all started, really. I went to this posh grammar school and most of the other kids were... It was a boys' school, 500 boys. It was quite large, you know, for a single-sex school in those days. And most of the boys were sons of doctors, dentists, vets, lawyers, school teachers. And I just didn't fit. I didn't fit at all. You know, I was scruffy, I was rude, I was ill-spoken. And I just didn't fit and I hated it. I absolutely hated it. And the only thing that kept me there, I, I was a very good sportsman, I was a very good soccer player. And a track athlete. And later on I ran for wheels and all that stuff, you know. And that's the only thing that kept me there. Otherwise I would have left when I was 16, as soon as I could have. Yeah. So that kept me there and supremely lucky. I struck up a great relationship with a games teacher there. And he, said, he called me over one day and he said, no one, he don't call you by your first names in a school like that. He said, Willie, he said, what would you like to do when you grow up? And he said, I want to run for Wales, sir. <laughs> oh, he said, um, oh, well, he said, to do that is before athletics clubs, you know, because I'm so old. And uh, he said, to do that, he said, you'll have to go to university or a teacher's training college. College. That's the only people who have athletics teams. Yeah. Said, How do you do that? And he said, well, you've got to pass all levels and pass A levels and try an entrance exam. And I said, oh, I can't do that. Can't do that. He said, well, you're not going to run for Wales then. <laughs> and that was it. That was the great decisions I made. So then he said, uh, what subjects are you going to do? I said, I don't know. I don't like anything except playing football and running. He said, well, it must be something you're good at. And I said, well, physics is pretty easy. Mathematics is pretty easy. French is impossible. History is impossible. English is impossible. (laughs) He said, all right, boy. He said, go to university and study physics and mathematics. I said, okay, sir. (laughs) (laughs) And that was that. (laughs) And that's how great decisions are made. So off I went, I went to university in Swansea. It had to be a Welsh university. Yeah. They wanted to represent the University of Wales. Uh-huh. In those days, the university in Swansea was the only one with a, a proper track, a proper cinder track, you know. Okay. So that's where I'm going. And by that time, I won a lot of stuff, so I got in quite easily, actually. So that's how it started. So three years later, I graduated with a good degree in physics. I didn't really want, want to leave Swansea, so I stayed on for a PhD in material science, as it happened. And I got a PhD by the time I was just 24, which is quite young, really. Quite, young. quite, quite young. So then I thought, what the hell am I going to do? <laughs> I'd always wanted a lecture at university. Yeah. I think it's wrong to go to school, go to university, and then stay at university. I think that's wrong. 
-hmm. basically should go out you know, and get a proper job, you know, and then go back when you've learned something, uh, which is what I did. So I worked as a material scientist in industry for a couple of years up in Essex, just mm -hmm. north of Epping Forest up there. Uh, lovely county, but I uh, didn't enjoy it very much. So then I thought, okay, it's time to move now, perhaps going to academia. And that was the start of the first big jobs crash. You know, there were just no jobs mm -hmm. at all. So I was offered three jobs, one in uh, Trinity College, which is very prestigious, of course. Yep. It was just the start of the bombings. And my wife had just become pregnant, the first mm -hmm. child. So I don't want to go there. And then the next one was King Faisal Air Academy. <laughs> which I didn't know where it was on a map. Then I got offered an interview in uh, Glasgow, in what is yeah. now Glasgow Caledonian, is Glasgow College of Technology then. So I caught a train uh, up to Glasgow, I've never been to Scotland. I caught a train to Glasgow and the weather was beautiful. So I had to stay for two days and I hired a little car and I drove down to Largs. Yeah. You know, you go down the big steep hill into Largs. Yeah. I don't know what it's called. And there wasn't a cloud in the sky. There was a regatta on, and all these little boats, you know, they sails. Oh, this is perfect. I'm going to come and live here. If they offer me the job, I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> and they did. And I thought I would be here for two years and then back down south. Mm -hmm. I wanted yeah. to live between sort of Bath, Gloucester, that region, you know, yeah. where my daughter lives now, actually. Um, so I came for two years, a bit of experience, and go down there. And that was over 40 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how life turns out sometimes, isn't yeah. it? In some ways, I was very lucky. I came into the college and it was relatively new. It hadn't been opened that long. And the science department was struggling. The physics department struggled. Mm -hmm. So I came in and I was a bright young thing, I suppose. And I started as a lecturer and I got the first ever government research grant in physics in the whole place. Okay. First published papers, the first big international conferences, first patent applications, first PhD students, first of everything really. So they propelled me through the ranks. The, the principal at that time was uh, a lovely chap and he was very, very kind to me. As you could see what I was doing, you know, for the institution. Yeah. Uh, so I got promoted a senior lecturer then a reader. And then I was the first personal professor at College of University. Mm -hmm. And all my work was the backdrop, with other people, obviously, but it was the backdrop to um, it, it finally becoming university. Because you had to produce all the evidence of research work and publish papers and grants and everything else. And by that time, I was speaking quite regularly at big international conferences all around the world. Yeah. So I was very lucky, really, to be in the right place, right time, you know? Mm -hmm. And <laughs> when I was doing that, my PhD particularly, I became very skilled in x-ray analysis. You give me a chance, not now, but then I could x-ray it, tell you what it was, where it came from, everything. And in 19, I can date it precisely, 1977, and it was just, just before the start of the big asbestos scares. And yeah. a guy came up to me, I had a pint on my way home one night. And this guy came up to me, he said, uh, are you Roger really? I said, yes. He said, are you the x-ray man? <laughs> he said, yes. He said, you can x-ray anything and tell you, yes, I have. Oh, fine, fine, fine. He said, can you analyze asbestos? 
supreme conflict. I couldn't pronounce the word. <laughs> the supreme conflict. Yeah, I can do that. No problem. He said, if I bring some to your lab tomorrow, can you analyze it? And I said, no, I'm far too busy with all this imported research work. He said, I'll pay you. I said, okay, I'll start tomorrow. <laughs> then by that time I had two little girls, you know, on a lecturer's salary, which I was then, I, I couldn't afford them. So, I, and that's how it started. And that's how the big adventure started. Mm -hmm. But to analyze it academically, it took me about two or three days, that's all. But to yeah. do it commercially, it took about eight or nine months of really hard research work. Mm -hmm. I lived in Barhead, south side of Glasgow. First train was quarter past six in the morning, I was on it. Then I worked till about half past nine, ended all my lectures till about four. And then I worked until the last train, which was quarter past nine at night. Yeah. And I did that every day, every day for about nine months till we cracked it. And then in 1978, uh, I started my little company and I opened the first private asbestos test house in Scotland. Yeah. There's one or two at universities, you know, which weren't plugged in, of course. Uh -huh. And that was the first one, and that was the start of the adventure. Yeah. So I was doing this commercial work, you know, and earning a bit of money and paying quite a lot of money to university. Mm -hmm. I paid for equipment, I paid for research students, you know, all sorts of things. Uh, and that got a fairly big reputation, really. Simultaneously, I was doing research work and a fair bit of modern legislation, respiratory protection is all based on my research work. Yeah. People tell me that's saving about 150 lives a year in the UK. Mm -hmm. You know, so this year there'll be 150 ladies, early 50s with a husband, and he shouldn't. This year there'll be 150 kids, early 20s with a dad, and he shouldn't, you know. I'm supremely proud of that. And I did some research work on uh, contaminated land to develop standards for asbestos contaminated land. Uh, and those are in, in use today, still in use today. Yeah. With all my traveling, of course, and the background like that, I was invited to go everywhere. So we helped set up the asbestos legislation in America a little bit, in Japan a big bit, mm -hmm. uh, in Turkey, and we currently work in Chile they have no regulations at all in Chile. Yeah. So we're helping those and the government there to set up new new regulations, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's been a great, great adventure. You know, we've done lots and lots of things and lots of things on the way through as well. Mm -hmm. Those are high, some of the highlights, I guess. But coming through the system, once you know, once I got into the asbestos world, I realized that dragged me very, very quickly into health and safety in general. You know, yep. so people know us for being asbestos people. We actually do everything within the company. We have been for ten years. The company's been forty years now. So that very quickly dragged me into health and safety, and I started doing other things and all course stuff and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And then I was invited to come along to branch meetings at, at IOSH. I wasn't qualified, you know. Yep. I didn't have any course certificate or anything. We did have a PhD and stuff, <laughs> published papers. <laughs> so I got invited along, and in those days, it was at the College of Building and Printing. And if we were lucky, we'd have about 12 or 15 people, and that's all. Yep. So there were a few of us, four or five of us, that clubbed together. It was ever so hard. And we drove that branch, expanded it hugely. And by the time I finished, I was on the committee for donkey's years. And I finished up, as you know, at the University of Paisley. I was invited over there to run the postgraduate department. 
Yeah. I took the whole of IOSH with me. Mm-hmm. So we had a big uh, building off campus, a big old house, uh, which was a great facility. And we got our numbers up to 50, 60 people uh, some months, you know. They yeah. transformed it. And I was delighted when, inf- when I was invited to uh, speak year before last, I think, at Hamden Park. Mm-hmm. I came across and spoke on the monthly meetings, and there were about 110, 120 people there. It was great to see it. You know, thinking started with 12 or 15, you know, and getting to a level like that is absolutely fantastic. Yeah, the Western Scotland Bank is just going from strength to strength. Yeah. Yeah. Loads of yeah. increasing membership and people yeah. coming along to the meetings. It's fantastic. Yeah. In the early days, the asbestos regs were changing all the time. And I used to put on uh, big uh, one-day conferences, one-day seminars, you know, with the branch, the university and the branch. And we split the proceedings. And we earned a hell of a lot of money for the branch. Mm-hmm. Uh, those days, you weren't allowed to keep the money. You had to give it back to Ayosh in Leicester. Yeah. So they built a library down there with Glasgow funds. It didn't please us too much. <laughs> but in those early days, I very, very quickly realised that there, were, there was a paucity of, uh, of courses, health and safety courses. Mm-hmm. There's an EBOSH, an EBOSH certificate course in the College of Building and Printing, and that was it. That was it. Yep. Nothing else. So I got a couple of people together, then I started the first ever NEBOSH diploma course in Scotland. And that ran very successfully at what's now the Caledonian. And then that led eventually, after I left, that led eventually to that health and safety group there, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then I went to Paisley, uh, where I started a postgrad department over there. Didn't have any smelly undergraduates, you know, because I had postgrads there. So we trained people from HSE, from REHIS, from mm-hmm. environmental health officers, uh, from SEPA, all, all sorts. A great reputation there. Uh, and that's when I introduced the first taught MSc programme in Scotland in yeah. health and safety. Uh, and that was very popular as well, very successful. There was a time when MSc graduates couldn't get jobs. We had about 20 people a year, something like that, and everyone had at least two jobs to go to. Everybody. It's a very course, even now. Um, I've done my undergraduate study at the University of the West of Scotland, which Mm -hmm. is all on from the the University of Paisley. Um, Very well respected course and a a great place to go and study. Well, all all of that came from from the foundations I laid, you know. I got a bit fed up towards the end and I didn't enjoy where I was working or who I was working with, so I just quit. I, got, I, I reported to the vice principal. So he called me up. He said, what's this? He said, what's this letter? I said, I'm going to resign. <laughs> he said, I can't do that. It was just before Christmas. He said, what are you doing for Christmas? And uh, I said, I'm going to see my daughter who's in Australia for a year. Mm-hmm. He said, how long are you going for? He said, well, I've only got two weeks. I'm going to Australia for two weeks. There's four days travelling, of course. He said, no one goes to Australia for two weeks, Roger. He said, well, I'm going because I've got no time. He said, take a month off. I'm not accepting your resignation. Take a month off. I'll come back and discuss it, mm-hmm. which is what I did. And I came back, and, I, and he was ever so nice to me. And I said, I'm really sorry, but I, I just have to do something different, you know? Yeah. And that's when I more or less quit academia. Um, I kept on doing postgrad courses, uh, teaching on postgrad courses at Strathclyde for Dog Gizios. I've done for a very long time. 
uh, but I didn't want to do full time, you know. So I I just do a couple of about ten hours a year. That's all. Um, but then I went into the business full time and just grew and grew. So yeah, and that, as I say, it's taken it's taken me around the world and very interesting places. Uh, I went to Japan. There was no legislation, so they meet posh people there, you know, and tell them what we we do in Europe. Again, we are very, very lucky because we are the first country to have uh, an industrial revolution. And it was steam driven, of course. Yeah. So all the early uh, propulsive mechanisms were steam driven. Steam rollers on the road, the classic example. You know, mm -hmm. steamships and the early lorries were steam lorries. By the time the industrial revolution went to France, Belgium, and everywhere else, Mr. Benz had done his bit. So whereas we were steam driven, they were internal combustion engine driven. So yeah. straight away, you see why Britain imported more asbestos than anybody else, straight mm -hmm. away. And then 30, 40 years on, we had the highest incidence of asbestos related cancers in the world. We were the first to have that, we were the first to have legislation, the first to have test methods, first of everything, you know. And the whole world has more or less copied us what we've done. If we find little bits of it, but the legi legislation everywhere is the same as ours. Yep. Test methods yeah. is the same as ours. So I was in a great position, really, once I started on these big conferences. People would say, well, you, can you come back and help us, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, I spent a fair bit of time off and on in Japan. And a couple of years ago, I, I was in Turkey for, for a while. And uh, USA, of course. Uh, at the moment, we're working in Chile. And if it wasn't for the COVID thing, I, I would be out there now. Yeah. So it took us about a year and a half to set it up. And I went out in November last year for a few weeks, which was quite successful. I met some nice government people, and they're now looking at what we're doing. And because it's not that far from South America, so they were taking, taking advice from, from North America. Uh, I don't like their their operational methods really. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we try to persuade them to do what we do in Europe and in yeah. the World Health Organization. You know, why step out of line, you know, when you've got a choice. So that's one of the things I'm doing at the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a little potted history really of where I came from. Yeah, definitely. And where I ended up just luck all the way. All the way. I didn't plan it. Yeah. Not at all. Not at all. It's really interesting, Roger. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the research you've done and how it's made a difference in industry relating to asbestos as well? Yeah, the first one brought about quite a change, actually. I was out on, once, uh, on a, um, a demolition site one day and the guys had uh, the old-fashioned uh, uh, negative pressure masks on, like a World War II gas mask, you know. I happened to be with uh, the senior Alpi, you know, the senior asbestos inspector from EHSE, mm -hmm. senior man to Essex Hotland, Headley, Headley Horsley. I was talking to Headley and it got on very well. I said, Headley, I said, these face masks, I said, are they any good? Of course they are, Roger, he said. It's a British standard. I said, oh, yes. So <laughs> I was still at university. So I went back, looked at the standard, and I started to laugh. And then I thought, no, 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 this is, this is quite serious. Because the British standard at Buxton, at the HSE research labs, they had uh, a British standard head, 
cut uh, from stainless steel. So they measured something like 6,000 British heads, took the average, and made one of stainless steel. And they had a hole drilled here and a hole drilled down there. And that was inside a one meter perspex cube. Mm -hmm. So if you wanted to sell a mask, you had to get uh, approval from the HSE. So you sent your mask to the HSE, they'd strap it on the head, they'd seal everything up, they'd blow a gas in and suck the gas out. Mm -hmm. Measure concentration coming in, measure what's coming out, divide them, uh, and that's the protection factor. <laughs> now, when I saw this, uh, I said, ridiculous. I don't have a British standard head. I go, quit and use your head. <laughs> British standard head doesn't have facial hair, doesn't have glasses, yeah. uh, it doesn't speak, doesn't sweat. And when you see the boys out on site, you know, they sweat profusely. Yeah. So there is no relation between that test and what I was looking at on, out there. No relation. So uh, I went to Chile. I said, look, this is crazy. I said, I'm going to start a little project. So it took us a year to get approval. We had a PhD student to do it. And we had a, a regular mask, you know, with, with, with the filter in front. Mm. And we, we had a tiny filter inside the mask. Yeah. Measuring what the boys breathing in. Yeah. And then we put them at work in asbestos enclosures or we put a sample on their collar. Mm -hmm. So this is a challenge. This is what you're breathing in. Divide them. Protection factor. Now the masks at that time, the HSE thought the protection factor was over 300. And we had a value of six. Mm -hmm. So they're breathing in 50 times what yeah. everyone thought they were breathing in. Yeah. So you know, we, we wrote that up. It takes ages to, to get a, a, a paper published in, in, the, in the journals. So we wrote it up and sent it to HSE. Uh, they were great, very, very quickly indeed. But I, I, I said, you know, privately I said to them, the asbestos removal boys of the 70s and 80s are the mesothelioma victims in the year 2000, yeah. which is exactly what's happened. All those chaps I used to know started the first asbestos companies. They're all dead. There's not one of them alive, not one of them. So that was unfortunately a prediction that came through, you know. Mm -hmm. And they realized that. So in very short order indeed, uh, they changed the regs into positive pressure, uh, you know, which is a must now, of course. You can't work with asbestos without the positive pressure mask. Yeah. The negative pressure depends on a perfect seal around here. And you can never get that, of course, ever. Yeah. Whereas a positive pressure, depends on there not being a proper seal around here. Because mm -hmm. if you had a perfect seal around here, the air is pumped in at three or four times the rate you're breathing. Yep. So if there's no exit for it, the head would blow up. You swell up and explode. <laughs> and you'd have brains on the wall. <laughs> so that's what happened. So if you take the number of people in the asbestos industry, asbestos strippers, you know, remover boys, mm -hmm. and then say, you only save five percent or ten percent of a year that's something like 200 people a year yeah. you know and it has made huge changes huge changes you've got these younger boys coming through now when i'm saying younger perhaps in their 40s you know being asbestos in pursuit 20 years wow. and there's nothing wrong with them there's nothing yeah. wrong with them whereas their fathers were in the industry before them mm -hmm. they're all dead in their 50s you know same yeah. as the coal miners so that, that was quite a major breakthrough. So yeah, we're very, very proud of that. Very proud of that.
And the other one was asbestos in contaminated land. Yeah, and that yeah. fascinating work, that one, Roger. Can you there tell us a little bit of detail about there that? Were no, there were no rules, there were no rules, regulations, guidance, notes, there was nothing, absolutely nothing. And the first ever major job was at Faz Lane. Yeah. It was a time they were going from the Polaris missile to the Tridents, or vice versa, I can't remember. Polaris to Tridents. Yeah. The Tridents are much, much, much bigger. So the yep. boats are much, much, much bigger, twice as long, huge things. And just for anyone watching, Fastlane, if you don't know, is a big naval base on the Clyde where the British nuclear attack submarines are located. Yeah, they, they got hunter killers there on the attack submarines as well. And one of them, of course, is always at sea, always. Yeah. Top secret naval base. If you drive through Dumbarton, there's signposts, Fastlane this way. <laughs> 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 uh, featured quite heavily in the news with the nuclear protesters protesting. That's right, that's right, that's yeah. right. But when a decision was made to build the Trident submarines, they're much bigger mm. and they needed a much bigger facility. So they bought an old shipbreaker's yard next door. Mm -hmm. So they didn't give it much thought. So the first couple of days, the diggers go in and all this white stuff comes up out of the ground. Mm. It'd been used latterly as a shipbreaker's yard. Yep. They rip the asbestos off the boilers, chuck it over the side, you know, and nobody knew what to do. So they said, okay, well, we'll take a skim of about say, 100 mil or something like that, and uh, we'll test the soil asbestos. Take a skim, test it, take a skim. Now, the analytical technique is so sensitive, you can pick up almost nothing, you know. So every time we tested, we said, there's asbestos there. Mm -hmm. This went on for a couple of weeks. And each skim is, I don't know, tens of thousands of pounds, you know. I said, wait a minute, stop. This is stupid. I was still at the university. I had my own labs and some stuff. So I built, I said, what's important is not what's in the ground, it's what's in the air. Mm -hmm. So how can I simulate this? So I built the cube and I built the little chimney, stuffed it full of soil with asbestos in, and then it was all computer controlled, and it blew it up in the air. Mm -hmm. Control environment, and I measured what was in the air. So we can produce a graph of the asbestos in the soil versus the asbestos in the air. You know? Yep. From that, you can determine maximum concentration of asbestos in soil, which will give you a value above the trigger con concentration of 0.1. Yep. And we did that. And then they so, said, well, in practice, it's always about 0.1, for God's sake. Now, what would happen if you if you wet the soil? So we did the same experiment, only this time we kept the percentage asbestos the same and added water to it. Mm -hmm. And the uh, airborne concentration drops exponentially. It drops yeah. by a factor of 100 when you go from, you know, from dry to about 10% water. So we went back to Fars Lane you know, with all these results very pretty quickly. Uh, and that's what we did. So we had uh, big water browsers. They did it in strips at a time, you know. Yeah. Uh, water barriers go in, they make it thoroughly wet. Uh, then they go in, dig out the stuff, and take it away. Can't tell you where, because that's still secret. Uh, but that was used a few years later in the next big job in Britain, which mm -hmm. was the big private hospital in Clyde Bank. Which used to be an asbestos factory. It's yeah. built on the biggest asbestos tip in Europe, Turner yeah. into the site. And so uh, when we that were out, of course, they put the padlocks on the gate and walked away. That's and right. Left. They simply walked away. 
yeah, I was there a couple of weeks after they walked away. It was disgusting. Mm -hmm. Blue asbestos on the floor, there were breeze blocks, and then asbestos cement walls, you know, top of the breeze blocks, you could run your hand down, and it was like a snowball, and it was blue. It was, mm -hmm. it was appalling. Yeah. So someone came up with the idea. There was an old um, Victorian big stone dock. They did boreholes, and the volume of the asbestos there was roughly the same as the dry dock. Mm -hmm. So the plan was to build a coffer dam, pump all the water out, line it with geotextile membranes, put all the stuff in, geotech membranes over the top, job done. Meter of clean topsoil on top of that, uh, with short root shrubs which go sideways, not down, uh, and to bind it all together. Yeah. Uh, by that time, you, you, we'd, we'd perfected our technique, so we had the job of going down there and supervising asbestos working. We had some of there all day, every day for years. Mm -hmm. And that was exactly the same. Um, they built a haul road from the contaminated site to, to the coffer dam area, big hole in the ground. So they worked in strips at right angles to the Clyde. So first thing, uh, the water bowsers would go up and down. We would test it to make sure it was thoroughly wet. Then they'd fill, uh, fill the big boxes. They would go around, dump it into the, uh, into the big hole. And that went on and on and on. So they that left behind a clean area, uh, dirty zone. So the clean area, uh, as the days went by, the clean area grew. Yeah. And the clean infill went into that clean area. And the dirty area, of course, got less and less and less, and it vanished into the black hole. Very mm -hmm. fine, fine piece of work. Really, really was. And every job in the UK has been that major job is done that way. Every one of them. Yeah. So and it all started at the Yeah. Your research led to a change in how jobs were facilitated across yeah. the whole UK. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Very, very gratifying, really. Very gratifying. Yeah. yeah. I, I, can remember, I can remember being told as a kid about that job in Claybank. My granddad yeah. worked in the shipyards in Claybank and I grew up there. Yeah. yeah. And um, he told me told me the story of the factory closing down mm. and the campaign that the shipyard workers had to try and fight against how much exposure they had. Yeah. He himself was exposed as a young man. He was a pipe fitter and was yeah. exposed by the laggers that would come along to lag the pipes right. in them yeah. and had pleural effusion. I used, can remember being a kid and uh, staying mm -hmm. overnight at my gran and granddad's house and hearing them waking up in the morning and going to the bathroom for 10 right. minutes coffee's lungs up yeah, yeah. That first breath in. yeah. it's horrible yeah over the years i've done an awful lot of court cases i do the expert witness with someone like your dad or your uncle or, you know they've died somebody's suing somebody and i do the expert witness bit in the middle yeah and i've done about 700 of them all together mm -hmm. but, um it's really really not nice not nice all the early days, they were all shipyard workers, of course, all of them, you know. Yeah. It's quite ironic, really. I was surrounded by deaths from silicosis and pneumoconiosis when I was 18. Mm -hmm. And all my working life, I've been surrounded by death from asbestosis and now by mesothelioma. Mm -hmm. It does mean I'm, I'm a very well-balanced person over there. So I grew up with a big chip on my shoulder, you know. I hate the NCD. <clears throat> and now I hate cable and table renewal. So I'm quite well balanced, you know. I'm a bit shorter than I used to be because of the weight. 
<laughs> but I'm very well balanced. <laughs> so can you tell us a bit more about your more recent career now, Roger? Take us a bit through the, the journey and some of the things that you've been involved in <sighs> more recently. Oh, gosh, that's a hard one. Just because we do so much, you know. Yeah. Within the business, I still look after the asbestos side of it uh, nominally. I don't go to site or things like that anymore. Um, but we, we do a lot of asbestos management work. Mm-hmm. Even to NHS Trust or a local authority or your big clients, you know, and sort out their management systems for them. Yeah. We're, we're very heavily involved with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now we, we, we have built an overseas presence as well in Turkey and in, in Chile as well. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, things, things are all, all right. <laughs> right. Well, they were all right until lockdown came, of course. Yeah. And how has that affected you, Roger, um, and your business? Oh, disaster. Disaster. Yeah. There's quite a lot of our work is with housing associations, and they are very, very, very risk averse. Uh-huh. Very risk averse. They just won't let you in. You had a big contract to look at attics, you know? Complete yeah. stop. Complete. There's no people there, for God's sake. You don't see any people, you know? Anyway, it all stopped. So we're quite a small company, only 26 or so. Mm-hmm. But there's four of us working full-time, that's all. But at least this week, sorry, last week, was the first of people returning. So yeah. hopefully we're going to get people back in the next couple of weeks, you know? Sure. I, I can't see it coming back to what it was. Not, not within a year or so. I really can't. And the training side of your business, you've adapted really, really quickly on the training side. We, we, we did. Online training. Yeah, we did. And face-to-face talk courses. Yeah, we did. Um, I, I developed some e-learning courses in asbestos, biosafety and Legionella a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. which have done quite well, really. And our asbestos course is used by SEPA. All the frontline inspectors do it, you know, yep. as an example. So we had those on the stocks, and then very quickly indeed, I found out about Zoom, about Zoom <laughs> taught myself. <laughs> and we do quite a lot of courses now by Zoom. Uh, I, I sit on the board of directors of UCATA, you know, uh-huh. that's yeah. training. Yeah. Um, uh, we, we moved quite quickly within UCATA for members uh, to allow courses which we normally insisted had to be face to face. Uh, we eased back a little bit until September and then we'll review it and we could do things like asbestos awareness for example we could do it like this yeah uh, that's been quite successful for us we've got a whole range of course health and safety courses and Legionella all sorts of things mm-hmm. uh, then on top of that it, we, we changed from originally an asbestos company it, it was always in my mind to build a risk management company that's what I always wanted to do. Yeah. I happened to start in asbestos risk, but we very quickly went on to chemical risk and stuff, you know, and everything else. And we are a real risk management company now. We really are. Mm-hmm. So when this COVID thing came along, we saw, well, we can help people here, you know. It's just yeah. a risk assessment at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. People are terrified of it, but you need to know what it is. It's a virus. How does it get into your body? What does it do to you? And how do you prevent it? It's a classic risk assessment. That's, that's, that's just what it is. So we've built some models and we've been sharing that with housing associations and all sorts of people. We've actually been very, very busy in the past few weeks. 
with people thinking about going back to work, you know. Yeah. With a bit of evidence of the lockdown weakening a little. I, I have mixed views of that, of course. Because mm -hmm. if, if you look at it purely from a medical point of view, you would maintain, maintain the lockdown from, from a yeah. physical point of view. Yeah. When you look at the mental stress, and you know, of old people who've been in lockdown and they, they've just gone crazy, you know. Yeah. If, if you look at the spike in, spike in COVID deaths, and there's a much, much bigger spike in excess deaths, you take deaths on average over the last 10 years in, say, June. Yeah. You look at this June, and there's a big, big spike on it. And I, I am sure, I don't see any stats, but I'm sure a lot of those are COVID related in the sense that people are in lockdown and they're elderly people and they're going to see now before they should be going to see now things like that you know so the, the, you have to balance all that stuff against the risks of people dying yeah. and, and that's such a difficult task uh -huh. especially especially when you've got an absolute lack of health and safety professionals and scientists in in promoted posts, important posts in the governments. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think that's a huge failing in our current system. Huge failing. Yeah. yeah. But people don't appreciate the difference between real risk and perceived risk. And you, you, you've heard me speak about that in the asbestos world, you know. Yeah. The crazy decisions people make, expensive decisions on the basis of perceived risk. Mm -hmm. When you look at the real risk, very, very small indeed. Yeah. It's a balancing act, which is almost impossible balancing act. Mm -hmm. Very difficult position the government are in as well to make hugely difficult decisions. Yeah, yep. hugely, hugely difficult. I do have some sympathy for them, for perhaps the first time in my life. <laughs> so, yeah. a very long and distinguished career, Roger. Really, really mm. interesting things you've been involved in all across your career. What's been your biggest challenge so far? I tell you the biggest challenge was when I first came into health and safety. Mm -hmm. I was invited in as an outsider. Mm -hmm. But I think, I think I earned my invitation over the years. You know, when you think the first diploma course, the first degrees, the first postgrads and everything else. You yeah. know. But that was a hell of a struggle. Mm -hmm. That's the hardest struggle I've had. Because when I came in, I don't want to sound patronising because I don't mean it that way at all. But when I first came in, all this, the most senior, older health and safety officers had all come in as engineers or did this, did that, did whatever. And they got up to a certain level in the company and they didn't make progress. Mm -hmm. And some younger people came behind and they done real good jobs, you know, and managers, directors didn't want to get rid of them. So, oh, we'll, we'll make you health and safety officers. Mm -hmm. And there was no training, there was nothing. They became health and safety officers. Mm -hmm. And most of the people I was surrounded with were like that. And it wasn't right because I came from a very structured background. Mm -hmm. you know, physics and mathematics are the hardest degrees you can do. Yeah. You know, it's very, very structured, you know, to come from that into this free-for-all. Mm -hmm. And I got to know, well, I started my postgraduate department eventually. And I got to know Richard Booth in the University of Austin. Yep. And he ran the equivalent down there. And between us, <laughs> it was our fault in a way that uh, CPD was, in, was introduced. Mm -hmm. 
you know, if you play those trees, you say, look, we've got to improve people. You've got to improve a pretty low baseline. You've got to improve, got to improve. And that's when CPD was introduced. And that was a hell of a fight to introduce that. We just yeah. take, you know. But that was a, a real struggle. But eventually it's paid off. You know, we've, we now have good courses. We have good people. Not that they were bad people before, but there's a paucity of good training, you know. Yeah. Whereas now we have good people coming in for the right reasons and we have good training courses, you know? Yep, definitely. definitely. I, I think all the things I've done that's got the hardest, I think. Mm -hmm. Because it required a complete change of attitude. Complete change. Now you know from your job that that's the hardest thing to do is change yep. people's attitudes. Yeah. Let's explore that a little bit, Roger. I know we've spoke in the past and I've seen you present some of your lectures on asbestos. Mm. And one of the things that really stood out to me was the part that you told us about the fibre count, the natural exposure that people get and how yeah. risk averse they are to it. Do you want yeah. to talk us through that a little bit just for the benefit of the viewers? Yeah, the two things really. One of them is the work of uh, Anthony Seaton about the mm -hmm. uh, University of Aberdeen. He retired a few years ago. He's the most wonderful man. Mm -hmm. And he's been doing post-mortems for over oh, years. And some of his early research papers, he kept the figure of 60% of all people in the UK have asbestos fibers in their lungs at the point of death. Mm -hmm. uh, in the big city, because you're surrounded by asbestos all the time. Mm -hmm. you know, the immediate uh, post-World War II building boom, there was a yep. shortage of stone, shortage of brick, you couldn't get wood, plastics were not being invented, what the hell do you do? You use asbestos, of course. All this stuff left over in the shipyards, the aircraft factories and so on. You come into the world in a factory, uh, into a hospital, full of asbestos. Mm -hmm. You go home to council house, full of asbestos. You go to primary school, full of asbestos. The secondary school, full of asbestos. The college, university, the same. And then you go to a sports center, a gym, a swimming pool, full of asbestos. You breathe in asbestos all the time. Mm -hmm. The car breaks, of course, up until very late 1970s, were always asbestos. Every time a vehicle went past, you breathe in fibers. So consequence of that, of course, his early paper said 60%, he now thinks it's 80 or 90%. But in a large conurbations like the Central Belt in Scotland, you know, London, Manchester, Cardiff, all of them, it's 100%. Yeah. 100%. So you've all got them down there. Now, let's be very conservative and say 60%. Be very conservative. Mm -hmm. 60 million people in the UK, which means 36 million people have asbestos fibres in their lungs at the point of death. Yeah, 36 million of them. Now, if one fibre kills you, this, I think it's a rather silly statement, you know, one of so dangerous, one fibre kills you. If one fibre kills you, 36 million people would die. Mm -hmm. On average, it takes 30 years, anywhere from 20, from 15 up to 60, on average with 30 years. So 36 million people would die over 30 years at 1.2 million asbestos deaths a year. Mm -hmm. How many die? I know it's gone up recently, but it used to be 2,000 a year for 20, 30 years. It's now about 5,000, it's stabilizing now about 5,000. Mm -hmm. So the theory says 1.2 million. Experiment, 
says 5,000. Experiments come from post-mortem studies. If you die from asbestos-related disease, the coroner must inform the HSE. So those figures must be true. 5 million must be true. So 1.2 million must be incorrect. Mm -hmm. We've lived in a scientific age for 500 years, since the time of Galileo. Arguably the first ever experiment with his pendulum in his cathedral. So clever people think they solve equations, they make a prediction. Other clever people think they build an experiment and they test it. Mm -hmm. All level physics, all level chemistry, all level biology, you know. And if it's the theory and experiment the same, everything's fine. If they're not the same, one of them's wrong. One point I don't agree. One of them's wrong. The one point two million must be wrong because this comes from postmodern studies. The one point two million must be incorrect. How do you arrive at one point two million? By thinking one fiber kills you. Now we we top and tail that by looking at the work of Professor Gibb. Uh, he worked for many years at the Pneumoconiosis Research Centre uh, down just outside Cardiff. Mm -hmm. He did postmortems and he counted fibres. So it was w one of our cases actually, a lad from Clyde Bank diagnosed with mesothelioma, medical opinion. 12, 18 months later, he dies postmortem, medical opinion becomes medical fact from the postmortem. So we know the boys died of mesothelioma. We had some of the biopsy material, we sent it to Professor Gibb, he analyzed the material, he came back with uh, 100 and approximately 110 million fibers in his boy's lung. Mm -hmm. 110 million fibers in his boy's lung. So we have a confirmed mesothelioma, 110 million fibers. Mm -hmm. And mesothelioma occurs at lower levels than lung cancer and much lower levels than asbestosis. Mm -hmm. So you'd expect someone to have lung cancer to have many, many more fibers than that, perhaps 10 times as much. And for asbestosis, about 100 times as much. Mm -hmm. You'd expect that. So there's a huge difference, you know, between the real risk and the perceived risk. Mm -hmm. uh, and unfortunately, uh, people are spending lots and lots of money, local authorities, housing associations, but they can't really afford in trying to eliminate a risk which is actually minute anyway. Mm -hmm. yeah. My view changes completely when it comes to the boys who, who take asbestos off, you know, they rip it off and things like that. Right? Yeah. My view changes completely with this. Anyway. And part Sorry, of the research on that bill, Roger, it's fascinating Sorry? to me that so many of these guys that remove asbestos are smokers. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things that I've seen in research papers in the past is that because they're a smoker, they're training their lungs to draw the oxygen and the smoke mixture deeper into the lung and oh, right. train the fibres to go further in. I've right. seen a couple of papers on that. Yeah. Fascinating. It's very interesting because all that work was done by Selikoff yep. in New York. Mm. He worked in the US shipyards in New York. That's where yep. he worked. So we talk the equivalent of Clyde Bank. Mm -hmm. Guys, you, you, you work in the bowels of a ship, and you, you can't see across the ship. You, yeah. know, you can't see a mate two, three meters away, you know, because you're up around 800,000 fibers per mil. That's what you're at. Mm -hmm. you, know, you can't see across the room. So his experiment, not very nice, of course, 
but you still have a cohort, you have normal people, and then you have asbestos workers, and then you have smokers, mm -hmm. <laughs> and then you have smoking asbestos workers. Mm. Uh, figures for something like every 100,000 people, there'll be 11 deaths from lung cancer. Yep. And you, you take 100,000 people in London, Paris, New York, Sydney, Australia, 11 of them die of lung cancer. You don't know why. Don't know if it's genetic defect or if it's when the chief engineer made us, he got something wrong. You know? But that's what should happen. Now, if you have 100,000 asbestos workers, and these are guys with no protection and you can't see across the room, the 55 goes up to 110, which is mm -hmm. twice as dangerous. So clearly we need to protect these guys. Mm -hmm. If you take 100,000 asbestos smokers, it increases, I can't the exact figure now, it uh, goes up to something like uh, 130, something like that. It's, it's three times more dangerous to smoke than it is to work with asbestos. Mm -hmm. And the real nasty one, if you're a smoking asbestos worker, the death rate goes up to over 600. And it should be about 30. Yeah. It's 55 times as much. Mm -hmm. So we've got these draconian asbestos regulations not really for asbestos workers because it's nearly twice as dangerous to smoke. We've got them because they're lunatics called smoking asbestos workers. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that's where it comes from. Yeah. 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 Really but, interesting work, Roger. And a career spent trying to save people. Your research is factored into saving 150 people a year, as we said yeah. at the outset. That's yeah. Absolutely mind blowing to me. I, I, I didn't realize I worked so hard, even now. I'm an old guy now, but even now, I never work less than 50 hours a week. You know, mm -hmm. that's what I do, and I, I just accept that's what I've always done since young boy. And someone asked me two, three, four years ago, Why do you do it? You don't have to do it anymore. Why do you do it? And instantly, my mind went back to Lewis Street. Mm -hmm the beginning and walking behind these crippled old guys bent over coughing and spitting they've always been a nosy boy i've got to have a look you know and you see the spitting on the on the pavement and uh, a bright red goat in the middle cherry red blood fresh from it and i was surrounded by that when i was 18. Mm -hmm. i didn't plan it i was just so lucky and i found myself in a position i could change that <laughs> i can do something change it and I have mm -hmm. I don't want to die tomorrow if I had to die tomorrow I wouldn't have any regrets yeah there's nothing I can look back on and say oh I wish I'd done that because mm -hmm. <laughs> I always did it mm -hmm. mostly it was disastrous you know <laughs> lose a lot of money or whatever <laughs> lose a wife along the way you know things like that <laughs> but I, I don't regret any of it so that probably brings us nicely on to talk about then, Roger. What advice would you give to someone starting out in health and safety today? Oh, gosh, that is so difficult. That is so difficult. I, I think health and safety is very, very, very com complex. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm a scientist you know, by training, you know, so I approach everything in a scientific manner. And I think that has helped enormously, enormously right through my life. Wherever I look at, you know, I, I, I bring these 
uh, railway track to it, you know, and I think down a railway track. Mm -hmm. uh, and people who don't do very good courses may be very good at other things. I'm thinking of social scientists, for example, you know, <laughs> and they're very good at what they do. I'm not quite sure what that is, but they're just people. But I think on tram lines, you know, and it takes me to solution. Mm -hmm. So I think what I'm trying to say is that uh, I think all health and safety courses should really have a strong physical science input, a bit of chemistry, a bit of physics, you know, a little bit of biology, a bit of virology now, you know, a healthy dose of mathematics. Um, so my advice would be to dig out somewhere a course like that. Mm -hmm as opposed to going to some airy fairy course somewhere. You know? Yeah. yeah. We, we, we see it from both ends. You know, I saw it at, at the university end, and we now employ these people. Mm -hmm. And, and you, you do see the failings in the system, I'm afraid. I can remember being at university and having to study the science side of things. I wasn't very academical when mm -hmm. I left school, and I went back to university later in life. And mm. to get that higher level qualification in health and safety and help my career progress. Yeah. I remember going in to do the, the science modules, um, analytical measuring, and I kicked yeah. and I screamed and I hauled, I'll never use this in industry. Mm. And I got my first job in health and safety. The first day I started, I went into the office and I sat down, and one of the facilities management health and safety team that sat across from me was sitting over a computer looking a bit puzzled and scratching her head and I said what's wrong and she said you know we're working in this school that we're facilities managing and we've got this swimming pool mm. and we've put too much chlorine in it <laughs> and we need to work out how much water to put in to dilute yeah, it down yeah. and I just of course and you said module <laughs> and got a big piece of flip chart paper and I'm on a temporary contract at this time yeah. I get a big piece of flip chart paper and I write longhand the equation out yeah. and I write it all down for her and I say right there's your dilution that's how much water they put into the swimming pool and they're looking at me as if I'm yes. yeah. yeah. and they said that's absolutely yeah. brilliant you know <laughs> and I, mean, I had to phone the head lecturer up um, a couple of weeks later I phoned them up and I said look I'm on a temporary contract here. They've offered me a full-time job. I think that's really impressive. <laughs> Thank you very much for putting up with me when I moaned and kicked and screamed about this. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know exactly who you're referring to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that, that proves my point, you know, especially these days, because so few people do science, so people are so terrible at mathematics. Yeah. Uh, and everyone makes fun of people who do science or engineering mathematics, you know. So a little bit of knowledge goes an awful long way in, in our business. Long, long way. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Roger. It's been brilliant to have you on. If anybody oh, wants any asbestos consultancy advice, or to come <laughs> on any of your training courses, I'll put the links up for your website. Yeah, that'd be great. Website when uh, we get set up from there and thank you on the behalf of the safer than your average listeners i know there'll be a lot of people fascinated with us present oh thank you thank you so much for the invitation it's been an absolute pleasure a real pleasure this podcast is sponsored by inside out group the specialists in high risk and challenging filming and time lapse covering health and safety videos for rail construction and infrastructure projects nationwide <laughs>